What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. So we need to break the ice. Do you know what I mean by that? Yes. What do I mean? Overcome initial social awkwardness. So let's have a conversation. Okay. It's time you knew the truth, Josh. This conversation, eight years of hosting this show together, just an elaborate Turing test. No. And the results? Well, if you were a machine, you'd have better taste in movies. So Hmm. I think we know the answer. I'm all human through and through. (laughs) Indeed you are. That clip from Alex Garland's Ex Machina, a film that last week made your top 20 films of the decade, Josh. Right there at number 11. This week, we continue the countdown with our top 10 films of the 2010s. That and more. We're going to tear up the effing dance floor, aren't we? Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. This week, we haul out those stone tablets and decree for all eternity the top 10 films of the 2010s, at least until tomorrow when we change our minds. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I was hoping I could do some chiseling of last week's show. I, I'm still feeling time. a lot of guilt over that Beast of the Southern Wild being bounced out of uh, the top 20. We'll also get into the first round results and second round matchups of our Best of the 2010s Film Spotting Madness Tournament. A couple of curious results. We definitely need to discuss. Plus, we'll have some thoughts on the new Invisible Man starring Elizabeth Moss. And Josh, you caught up with the new Peter Pan adaptation, Wendy. It's a packed show. Yeah, better known as Ben Zeitlin's follow-up to Beasts. That's right. Before that, though, let's get back to our countdown. Last week, we did proclaim our 11 through 20 picks for the best of the decade. And we set up the criteria for our list. We were pretty similar in terms of the goals we had or maybe the questions we had in mind as we considered lots of titles. Do you want to review for the class? Well, I'll summarize because it was kind of a lengthy diatribe I went into, but um, I think even less so this time, I'm worried about trying to establish a canon that will stand 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. I'm really taking more into account Not only my own personal preferences and memories of the decade and things that have stuck with me, but the cultural context that we can bring as people just removed from a decade we lived through while reviewing films. I think that's a unique perspective, and I'm trying to maintain that for this list. So movies that spoke to those 10 years particularly and also spoke to me personally. Mm -hmm. And I think the speaking to me personally is the most important, at least it was for me. And I think that's something we will see play out as we get into our top 10 choices. But first, for people who may have missed last week's episode or haven't reviewed our list over at filmspotting.net, why don't you recap your 20 through 11 picks? Start at 20, go down to 11. All right. At 20, I have the movie that bumped out Beasts. It's The Act of Killing, the documentary from Joshua Oppenheimer. Spike Lee's Chirac was at 19. Nuri Bilga-Jalan's Once Upon a Time in Anatolia came in at 18. And then this this was a late entry for me, but I like where it is. I'm happy about this still. It's The Bling Ring from Sofia Coppola at 17. Deborah Granick's Winter's Bone at 16. Sean Baker's The Florida Project at 15. Then up at the top, I have Roma. Phantom Thread, the only PTA on my list, believe it or not. Portrait of a Lady on Fire from Celine Sciamma, the most recent pick on my top 20. And then as we set up at 11, I had Ex Machina. I had The Arbor from Cleo Barnard at 20, a former film spotting Golden Brick winner. 
Tower from Keith Maitland at 19. My Spike Lee choice, Black Klansman at 18. David Fincher's The Social Network was at 17th. And then the breakout film from Yorgos Lanthimos, Dogtooth at 16. Barry Jenkins, If Beale Street Could Talk was my number 15 pick, followed by Kelly Reichert's Meek's Cutoff at 14. I had Kenneth Lonergan in here at 13, not Manchester by the Sea, but Margaret Abbas Kiristami's certified copy at 12, and Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin, starring Scarlett Johansson at 11. Again, if you would like to review those picks at your leisure, you can find them whenever you'd like at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists at the top of the page. Why don't we go ahead then and dive in. Like last week, we are going to move relatively quickly through these first Five picks. What do you have, Josh? All right. My number 10 is somewhat similar to Phantom Thread and my PTA pick. I did limit myself only. A director could only have one title on my top 20. So at number 10 is my only Coen Brothers movie, and it's Hail Caesar. Now, would that it were so simple to pick one Coen Brothers <laughs> movie, Adam? Why not True Grit? Why not Inside Lewin Davis? Why not The Ballad of Buster Scruggs? Why not? All legitimate choices. Yes. I guess part of my reasoning is, well, it's the musical sequences in Hail Caesar. I'm sorry. I'll take Channing Tatum tap dancing over Oscar Isaac singing and playing the guitar any day. Nothing wrong with Oscar Isaac, but give me the tap dancing. <laughs> also, you know, the fact that in this spiritual journey that is the Coen Brothers filmography, you can definitely look at their movies this way. This, Hail Caesar, is their greatest Jesus tease. And for me, that's endlessly fascinating how they toy us with these New Testament elements in their primarily Old Testament films. Um, and the fact that Hail Caesar can do that and be such fun as well um, is just catnip for me. All right, number nine. A Pichapong Rasatakul's Uncle Boon Mi, who can recall his past lives, probably should be on this list, but it's not. I'm putting Cemetery of Splendor, his film from 2015. Uh, a little misdirection there from well, Josh. Well, Uncle Boon Mi, you know, that it mesmerized and befuddled me. Uh, Cemetery mesmerized me more and befuddled me a bit less. I could I could find more of a way in here. This movie pierces that membrane between the rational and the spiritual, and it has a montage involving the neon light of glowing breathing machines that might be the most magical filmmaking moment of the decade. At number eight, I have The Fits from 2015. This is the golden brick winner in my top 10. It's Anna Rose Homer's story of an 11-year-old girl who joins a dance team at a Cincinnati community center. Not exactly the locale you'd pick for some transcendental filmmaking, but that's what we get. Uh, this is an out-of-body experience for the main character played by Royalty Hightower, and it was definitely for me as well. Number seven, it is Leviathan, Adam, from 2012, the one made by the documentarians Lucien Casting-Taylor and Verena Paravel. Yes, the one with fish heads. Oh, of course. I've never abused my film spotting powers more, I think, than forcing the audience at our 2012 at rap show. party at a live show to watch a scene of fish parts <laughs> sloshing back and forth on the deck of a ship. Unforgettable. You know what? I'm standing by Leviathan on this top 10. Of course this you was are. another out of body experience at the movies for me. This documentary made from countless GoPro cameras tucked into the corners of a commercial fishing trawler. The effect is to turn waves and guts and yes, fish heads into meditative magic. One of the more hopeful images for me of the decade is still those white blips of the seagulls beating in the dark sky of the open sea at night. I love Leviathan. Well, that choice of making us all watch that on the big screen <laughs> at that live show may have been confounding and will eternally be confounding. But I'm in the minority, certainly on Leviathan. If you look at a lot of the top 100 films of the decade list, it's in there somewhere. Yeah, not, that, not necessarily in the top 10, 
but it's in there. That, you know, I will say I felt better when that film comment special issue I mentioned on our last episode, which compiled top 10 lists from all sorts of critics and filmmakers and programmers. I saw this pop up on a handful of them. And mm-hmm. I thought, okay, I'm not entirely crazy. All right. My last quick pick here, my number six, won't spend a ton of time on it because it was in year 11 through 20, Adam, and rightly so, Meeks cut off Kelly Reichert's period masterpiece about pioneers lost in 1845 Oregon. I often think about them still out there. When I think back on the movies of the past decade, that riveting tale is so indelibly told, you feel like if you headed to Oregon right now, you'd find them still circling Mm -hmm. around. That's my 10 through 6. Obviously a great choice. Do you recall which film it was last week where you quoted Alyssa Wilkinson from Vox by chance? (sighs) I believe that was on Portrait of a Lady on Fire because I'd been talking so about that movie myself lately. I wanted to have someone else chime in. Okay. Well, I just liked her comments on this film, so I stole them for my number 10 pick. And plus, we did hear some talk about it last week already because it was your number 20. My number 10 is The Act of Killing from Joshua Oppenheimer and Alyssa when she did her list for Vox of the top 50, I think, documentaries of the 2010s. She rightfully had this film at number two. This is what she wrote. Chilling is not a sufficient descriptor for the act of killing, which pound for pound is probably the most influential documentary of the decade. In this film and its 2014 companion film, The Look of Silence, director Joshua Oppenheimer focuses on the people responsible for the 1965-66 genocide in Indonesia. Nearly a million people died, ostensibly for being communists. Oppenheimer explores the depth and heart of the evil by working with the perpetrators themselves to create scenes that explore their feelings about the killings in the style of various movie genres, gangsters, westerns, and musicals. It's both horrifying and absolutely stunning, and that really does nail the act of killing. My number nine, and Josh, last week I said my toughest film spotting madness matchup in round one was the act of killing versus take shelter, and that everyone would understand why when they heard this week's show, our top 10 films of the 2010s. I believe at that point I said that I went with the act of killing. And that's because last week I had the act of killing slightly ahead of Take Shelter. And you know what? I changed my mind. I decided that Take Shelter, Jeff Nichols' film from 2011, is my number nine film of the decade. This is a movie that came out in 2011. But in terms of capturing the anxiety of the 2010s, perhaps foreshadowing the swirling storm that was heading right for us, my mind certainly goes to this movie. We weren't prepared, Adam. No, we weren't. And it's one of the truly provocative, enigmatic endings of the decade, for sure. Have loved sharing theories and talking about that with film spotting listeners. And you've got Michael Shannon and Jessica Chastain giving wonderful performances in one of my favorite movies about marriage. For me, this is a movie that's on par with one of my favorite films of all time from my childhood, one of my favorite books. John Irving's The World According to Garp in terms of it being about the pressure of a parent to protect his or her family. And that line between being a little bit nervous and overprotective and building an underground shelter in your backyard, I think that's a lot more tenuous than most of us would maybe care to admit. It's also very much a movie about masculinity where the crisis is you have a man who's so afraid to admit weakness and ask for help and be vulnerable even in front of his wife that he does ultimately lose his grip on reality. My number eight, this will be really brief, a little South Korean film you may have heard of called Parasite. Have we talked about Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, Josh? Man, in the top 10. Yeah, absolutely belongs. My number seven, obviously a film that belongs. The grief I'm going to get is from listeners who think it belongs way higher. 
I'll let Todd Cassell do the honors. He wrote in and said, short and sweet, the best movie of the decade is Mad Max Fury Road. How do I judge that? Multiple viewings and land on channel and don't budge until done watchiness. That's a big, bolded period at the end of that sentence. I'm as much a film connoisseur as the next guy. I'm as much a critic and lover of independent film festival sweethearts and guilty pleasure blockbusters and goofy cat-leaping horror movies. And I suppose this wasn't as short and sweet as I originally promised. The best movie of the decade was Mad Max Fury Road. Debate over. Don't disappoint me. He says, well, let me be the first to tell you, Adam, that you have that much, 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 much too low. I figured. And believe me, I went back and forth on it, which is the fun and the angst of doing these lists. I'll say it probably should be number one. And in my initial go of these top 20 films, it was in my top five. I thought it was a lock for the top five. Those performances by Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy and its story, not just one of female subjugation turned empowerment, but what it says about power and moral decay and corruption. And of course, the craft on display by George Miller, the sheer intensity and insanity of it obviously belongs on this list. But you know what? This is where I show my true Adam colors. I'll speak of myself in the third person here, Josh. This is where I show who I really am. It's come to that. It has. That's what it takes to defend this next choice, being ahead of Mad Max Fury Road. But when I really started to think about never getting to experience Fury Road again, or my number six, I had to give the slight advantage to Richard Linklater. Forget that symphony of chaos. I needed people just sitting around talking about things. And yes, as a 12-year experiment, I think it's a cinematic experiment that could only be cinematic. That's what I really love about it. You couldn't capture, we talked about this a lot when it came out, you couldn't capture that passage of time really in any other medium. I think the film fundamentally understands that life is all about transitions. It's about small changes that are barely visible, not grand transformations, not the grand transformations we usually see in movies and especially coming of age movies. I think about Ethan Hawke's speech about the whales and Patricia Arquette's, I just thought there would be more lament at the end of the film and thinking about how when They were moving early in the film when her kids are much younger. She's the one who tells her son Mason to just paint over those pencil marks that show her kids growth over the years, how tall they're getting. And as if it didn't hit me hard enough, Josh, back in 2014, I was reviewing my notes the other day. And in it, I mentioned that the 12 years we see in boyhood that's captured essentially in real time, if you will, with these actors Those corresponded to the first 12 years of my oldest child, Holden's life, born in 2002. It was 2014 when the movie came out and we talked about it. And now he's the one who's going off to college. Yeah. Well, speaking of the timing of that, can you imagine if Linklater had managed this, had been, you know, this is the anti-Linklater thing to do, but had managed to just time this project so it came out like last year at Mm -hmm. the end of a decade. And those 10 to 12 years had, I mean, it would have launched pretty much on everyone's best of the decade at the very top. It was on many best of the decade lists, maybe not many who had it as high as I do at number six, but time and that connection to these characters and these processes has always been something with Linklater. I have obviously been drawn to, if you think about those before trilogy movies and the way 
my age almost exactly corresponds to the age of those characters. So I'm in the bag for Linklater, and Boyhood had to be high on my list. It is here at number six, Josh. We will go more in-depth on our top five picks in a little bit, but first... This is blasphemy! This is madness! This is absolute madness! This is is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. This is Sparta! It is film spotting madness. We've got some very upsetting round one results, at least for me. We've got some very upsetting round two matchups. And we'll remind you, if you're not familiar, if you're new to the show, Film Spotting Madness is our annual bracket style tournament. 64 films from the 2010s and only one can reign supreme. Round two of this year's madness did just kick off earlier this week. We remind you that new rounds open and close every Monday. You can find the voting and the bracket over at filmspotting.net slash madness. We do want to share some of the round one results, of course, before we get into those round two battles. And we had over 3,000 votes cast, Josh. That's crazy. In most of these. So I thought, why don't you start with the biggest blowouts? All right. And then I can dive into some of the upsets we had. Well, here's some support for you having Parasite in your top 10 of the decade. It crushed the Babadook, 93% to 7%. Another big win for another pick of yours, Mad Max Fury Road over Logan, 85% to 15%. Moonlight beat pretty soundly Chloe Zhao's The Rider, 84 to 16%. And then one more blowout here, Spike Jones's Her over Marin Ada's Tony Erdman, 83 to 17%. So those were the only four that had a margin of victory there that was at least... 80 to 20 or higher. A fair number where the winning choice was in the 70s or the 60s, but we will not share all of those results here. You can see those over at filmspotting.net slash madness. Now, these are the upsets, Josh, and I say that technically because in terms of the seating, which Sam and I, as the bracket makers, we are fairly protective of the science or lack of science that goes into this. And that's probably because we just don't want to be called out as the frauds that we are (laughs) making these brackets. But we had some films definitely as higher seeds and little secret. If you want to know whether or not you're voting for the higher seed or the lower seed, the higher seed is the first title listed. I'm not sure any of these are major surprises, but again, technically upsets, at least according to the way we did the seating. Personal Shopper from Olivier Asayas beat out Sarah Pauly's Stories We Tell. Close, 52 to 48%. I think that was because Sam and I love Stories We Tell so much. I'm not shocked that the film starring Kristen Stewart probably was seen and loved by more yeah, people. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Moonrise Kingdom versus Before Midnight. My You Monsters pick. That's a refrain our listeners love, but I had to express it last week for this one. It was virtually tied. Very late into the round one voting, but Moonrise Kingdom did emerge with the victory, 54 to 46 percent. I had nothing to do with that. I, no, I didn't call in the West Anderson fans. The ballot no, box. no, no, just watched it. Marriage Story versus La La Land. We did have La La Land as the higher seed. Marriage Story took it 56 to 44. Damien Chazelle started the tourney with two films, La La Land and Whiplash. Both of those are now out. How about what we do in the shadows? versus Abbas Kiristami's certified copy. A slam dunk, maybe, for one of the most critically acclaimed films of the decade, right? And of course, no, 
not even close. What we do in the shadows crushes certified copy 74 to 26%. Got this comma from Mitka Elperovitz. Can we have a laugh sometime? We need a laugh. Yeah. And maybe that's, you know, I think this came up when we were looking at past winners of the previous films. It's Fargo and There Will Be Blood. Right. So we said, let's bring some comedy in this. The the voters did so. I also got to say, this didn't surprise me because... You know, think about when Certified Copy came out. We probably talked about it then to some degree, but what we do in the shadows came up more recently. We talked about it quite a bit. It's developed into something of a cult favorite. So I can see how it hit that sweet spot of both having a little more popularity, a little more play on the show more recently, and that might have pushed it over the top. Absolutely. In retrospect, it was dumb of me to think that Certified Copy would win. I don't question... I suppose what Sam and I were thinking, making it the higher choice in the tournament versus the lower seated what we do in the shadows. But our voters clearly went for Taika Waititi's wonderful comedy. So here's another one that really was for me a coin toss. But we felt pretty good about putting Roma as the higher seed versus Denis Villeneuve's arrival. But we really didn't have any sense how this one could play out. And how about Arrival? Taking down Roma 60 to 40, Josh. People are deeply, personally, emotionally attached to Arrival. I've I've learned this over the years as someone who had a positive but sort of removed experience with it. Man, don't tell that to someone who really loves that movie. Our last upset, and the only words I have for it are, what can we say? The most shocking and the tightest margin of any matchup in round one. We had the audacity to place... Kate Blanchett, Rooney Mara, Carol, <laughs> up against one Jonathan Wick. And maybe like Certified Copy, you think even though this is kind of a cult favorite and certainly more people probably saw John Wick ultimately than saw Carol, you just think that the more acclaimed, more revered film, and many would say the better film, would win out. And John Wick takes Carol down. And this is how close it was. to 49.65. The margin out of like 3,000 votes was 20. 20. Didn't shock me, though. This this was where I predicted. I thought you, I mean, for one thing, John Wick has a couple of sequels. I mean, a lot of people have seen these movies. A lot of people keep going to these movies and they love these movies. This is also one of those. Yes, but our listeners have taste. uh, Ouch, ouch. And I say that as someone who quite quite likes the first John Wick. Do you? I think some snobbery is is rearing its ugly head. I really like John Wick. Uh, The first one. The first one's good. Carol is a much better film. I will join you in the snobbiness, but you got to throw that sort of thinking out when it comes to madness. I mean, this is also one of those matchups that reveals the idiocy of madness because pitting these two films against each other makes no sense. So it's hard to think about these two films in the same universe going against each other. So how do you do that? In terms of some other surprises and disappointments for me from round one, and there certainly were a few that surprised me because in my prediction bracket, and we'll get to these results here in a moment, I missed seven of the first round battles. And yes, some of those were a coin toss. I think they would have been hard for anybody, but I was a little bit surprised that Francis Ha took down Django Unchained, Mm. the Quentin Tarantino film, pretty decisively, 56 to 44. Now, you could argue that what a lot of people feel is a better Tarantino film, at least I'm guessing, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is already in the bracket. But then again, there's another Gerwig in the bracket with Lady Bird, and there's another Noah Baumbach in the bracket with Marriage Story. So I think it's just that love for Francis Ha. I thought Django had a better shot. Yeah, I think, you know, the Tarantino love has 
proven to be strong in these madness tournaments, but I don't, I think Django is the, in people's minds, Django is the lesser Tarantino film right. than Francis Ha's the lesser Baumbach film. I think does that, that makes sense? I think that does make right. sense. I love Brady Larson's comments in the poll. Gentlemen, to paraphrase a line from Calvin Candy, Django Unchained had my curiosity, but Francis Ha now has my attention. <laughs> How about The Tree of Life, a movie that just might come up later in this show, a top four seed, as I recall, a movie you think has a chance to contend for the winner overall of Film Spotting Madness. It went up against a Pixar film that I quite liked, Inside Out. Mm -hmm. Really went for Inside Out in my top six or seven, definitely, of Pixar films. And it only beat Inside Out 55 to 45. Did that surprise you? It did and does not portend well for my prediction bracket because, as you said, I, I'm with you thinking, and this may be where personal bias comes into play, right. um, that the Tree of Life has the stature to go on. It also came out a long time ago now, Adam, mm -hmm. that maybe hurt it a little bit. The last one I'll mention, I kind of hoped that Meek's Cutoff, which, as we just heard a little bit ago, was your number six film of the decade. It was in my 11 through 15, and I thought it would be a little closer with the Asghar Farhadi film, A Separation, but it did lose 69 to 31. So Kelly Reichert, sadly, out of Film Spotting Madness. As someone who once arranged a public screening of Meek's Cutoff, thinking that... It, you know, people are just going to be knocking down the doors to see right. this thing. <laughs> this slow Western. <laughs> it's not a Western Me at and all. a couple of friends had a good night, Adam. So <laughs> I bet you did. Not shocking okay. that Meeks didn't move on. We will move on then to our round two matchups. Again, not going to go over all of them with you. You can look at those 16 matchups and vote over at filmspotting.net slash matchups. We're going to do what we did last week and highlight the ones that seem to be for us the toughest. So as you look over the bracket, what troubles you? All right. Not quite as many troubling matchups this time. For me, Adam, things are starting to shake out, though I was, I did have to take a pause when I saw the Master and Dogtooth coming up against each other. Now, neither of those have shown up on my top 20 of the year so far. You've already had Dogtooth on your list. Um, but these, I think, are both it's two filmmakers really at the top of their game, two master filmmakers at the top of their game in PTA and Yorgos Lanthimos. So um, I'm not going to tell I'm not deciding yet. I'm just going to tell you that's tough. I can't even make that choice. <laughs> Fair How enough. about Grand Budapest Hotel and Lady Bird? Uh, listeners might think this we'll is there. a no-brainer for me. Mm. Um, but no, it's a tough one because I am a huge fan of Lady Bird. Grand Budapest Hotel, I'm also a huge fan of, but have it maybe ranked in my Wes Anderson ranking a little lower than most people. So that's why that one is hard to do. I'll probably go with, at the end of the day, I think I probably will go with Grand Budapest, but it's not easy. And then one more here. Boy, Get Out and First Reformed. Um, we'll see. I eventually came, as we get to our top five picks, I came to a conclusion here, but it was very difficult to vote against Paul Schrader's masterpiece, the pinnacle of his career. So First Reform does factor in this week for me as well. And I think almost all of the titles that I'm about to mention all were tough for me in the round one matchup. So it only got worse, not easier, in round two. The one I'm saying is the toughest. It was Active Killing versus Take Shelter last week. This week, it's the Active Killing versus Under the Skin. My number 11 film of the decade versus my number 10. I guess... Because I did just rank them, I have to give the nod to The Act of Killing, and I'm okay with that as much as I love Under the Skin because 
I kind of want at least one really groundbreaking, fascinating documentary yeah. to perhaps continue in the tournament. I think that's what helped push it into my my top 20 ranking. Yeah. The Get Out versus First Reform matchup. It was the Irishman in First Reform last week. Get Out and First Reform is tough. Again, I think First Reform is a movie that I would rate slightly higher. Okay. But I do think of maybe like The Act of Killing. I think of Get Out as being a little bit more influential and a film that had a bigger impact on the decade. For sure. And with that in mind, I'm going to give Get Out the slight nod. My honorable mention, toughest choice in round two is The Wolf of Wall Street versus Moonrise Kingdom. Again, Moonrise Kingdom here factoring in. I guess I got to give it. I mean, you could make me really happy here. Adam. I know. This, this could be it's like so the best. Hard. My birthday is coming up. Come on. Here's what I know. My my gut wants to go with the Scorsese, but I am positive. This makes you feel any better. I haven't voted in this one yet. If it makes you feel any better, I'm pretty positive that if I watched Moonrise Kingdom again, mm-hmm. I'd be like, yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's the film. Mm-hmm. You would. So this week's You Monsters pick, but really it might be better as You Morons directed at myself and Sam because this is just bad seating. It is Lady Bird versus Grand Budapest Hotel. And it's not so much a You Monsters pick for me personally because I clearly love Lady Bird a lot more than Grand Budapest. That was actually one of the quickest ones for me to vote in. But just thinking about our listeners and the way a lot of them I know feel about that Greta Gerwig movie, her debut, and that Wes Anderson film, I know it is driving a lot of our listeners crazy. And it's a case where Sam and I really were questioning after the fact. We didn't see that one playing out. Mm-hmm. Somehow we didn't look ahead. In our haste, trying to get the bracket all together, we thought we had looked at everything. We probably would have tried to avoid a matchup where those two had to battle each other in round two. This feels more like at least a Sweet 16 matchup. But I will say, we seated them both in the top 20. We seated them both in the 10 to 20 range. So this is kind of just where the dice fell. I think that 10 to 20 range is where they belong in terms of thinking of them among the best of the decade. So I'm not sure we did anything really wrong, and yet maybe we should have maneuvered things. So (laughs) this wasn't happening here in round two. That means that the madness power couple right now, I guess you could say, is Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig as collaborators on Francis Ha. Gerwig's Lady Bird, of course, in there, and Baumbach's Marriage Story advancing. So they've got three films between them, though this really might become... Anderson versus Anderson as Phantom Thread and The Master are both in the mix and Grand Budapest Hotel and Moonrise Kingdom are competing here in round two. A couple random notes that came in that we thought were worth sharing. I said maybe the power couple. This was all about Gerwig and Baumbach. How about this? We got an email from Joe Antonini. It was his eulogy for some films that he's sure weren't going to advance past round two. And Joe's probably right. He did note that Lucas Hedges, so great in his Oscar-nominated performance in Manchester by the Sea, Joe writes, appears in four Madness films. That's three more than Phenomenon Timothy Chalamet's lone one, of course, being Lady Bird. So Lucas Hedges may be one of the surprise stars of Film Spotting Madness. He appears not only in Manchester, but Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest Hotel, and, of course, in Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird, along with Timothy Chalamet. Other actors with multiple titles in the tournament, though, look at Leonardo DiCaprio. He has four, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Inception, Django Unchained, 
and Wolf of Wall Street. Two others have four, Adam Driver, and here's, yeah, where you can see the Baumbach influence because Marriage Story and Francis Ha, but then Patterson as well and Inside Lewin Davis. Another name, maybe one that wouldn't have come to mind, more in the Lucas Hedges category, but someone with four appearances, Kyle Chandler, The Wolf of Wall Street, Zero Dark Thirty, huh. Carol, which I completely forgot about, and the aforementioned Manchester by the Sea. So we will highlight quickly here, Josh, that in the early voting, there are two that are quite close. One of them, very surprising, at least to me, but will serve as confirmation of a point you made not too long ago about the groundswell of support for Denis Villeneuve's arrival, Mm. the adoration for that movie. It's going up against the Cone Brothers inside Lewin Davis. I think it's fair to assume that me, you, Sam, and Mike Merrigan, who we call the founding father of film spotting madness, we probably all picked inside Lewin Davis to advance past arrival. Yes. Right? And didn't I didn't give it much thought, despite me, knowing all that love for arrival. Either. And guess what? Again, it's only been a few days as we tape this, but they are virtually tied. They're trading leads. Arrival could win. And I think we'll all be in trouble. Our brackets will all be in trouble. So maybe it'll they will. out. We did get this note from a listener, Lee Klusky. Send us a donation, a gold-level donation. Thank you so much, Lee, for that. And this may be, Josh, the first ever bribe in the history of the show. The first time a listener ever tried to coerce us oh, no. with cash. At least that I can recall, he says, it would be a shame if Arrival didn't make the Film Spotting Madness semifinals. I mean, does that sound like a bribe to you? Yeah, I, I think that makes this tournament legit. Now, <laughs> once things start getting shady, you've hit the big time. And here's the thing. I'm good with shady. For that level of a donation, uh-huh. he was so generous. I would probably perform some shenanigans at the ballot box. I have that power. <laughs> But not when it's going up against Inside Lewin Davis. You are barking up the wrong tree, Lee. Oh, so you do have a price. This <laughs> oh, yeah. particular It's matchup. a lot more than that. Just, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> Glad I know that. Also, Grand Budapest versus Ladybird. I said it was the You Monsters or Morons pick of round two. Indeed, trading leads every minute. We have a new leader in that one. So round two is going to be a lot of fun. It will be open until Monday, March 9th, Monday, March 9th at 11 a.m. Central Time. That's when the round two voting will close. The Sweet 16 voting will start at noon, and we will get into some of the surprises and disappointments and toughest matchups on next week's show. The last little bit of Film Spotting Madness business we have to do is to give a leaderboard tally in terms of our bracket challenge. And also this year, for the first time ever, listeners getting to predict their bracket as well. We had 678 brackets submitted, Josh. (laughs) After round one, do you think any of us are winning? Me, Um, you, Mike or Sam? No, no, I don't think so. Top of our leaderboard is a listener named Mark Shapland. He picked 31 of the 32 first-round matchups wow. correctly. Nicely done, Mark. The only one he had wrong, I said I thought it would be tough, Django and Francis Ha. He mm-hmm. thought that Tarantino would advance. He also has the highest score potential. It tells you how many more points you can possibly get. It's not a lot in terms of that differential, but he's got 191. That's the highest. So Mark, in a prime position to take 
film spotting madness, but it's early. It's he, very early. If if he holds, if this holds up for Mark, he might have to have a role in next year's selection committee. He might. You know what? That could be the prize. I think that's that's that, what it should be. That could be a good prize. Now, here's the thing. He could get close, Josh, because I'm just going to say I think he's got a really good final four. His final four includes Fury Road. Okay. The Master, mm-hmm. Parasite, mm. and Boyhood. Mm. My gut feeling, Boyhood, I don't think is going to get anywhere near the final four. Mm. But those other three have a shot. Yeah. I think he's got a good mix there. Two of those, I'm with him. Okay. So let's see how we did. Who's in first place, Josh? Well, I'd like to take this <laughs> brief moment to announce that it happens to be, to my own great surprise, me. Yeah. I'd like just to sit here in this spot for a while. Pretty good, too. 21st place out of 678. How about that? I hope it doesn't last. Well, I I think I should get extra points, too, for the amount of time we each spend in making these predictions. (laughs) Because you took about 32 seconds. (laughs) It was a little more than that. Okay. You have all your remaining picks left. You had 28 of 32 correct in round one, and you are looking good as things set up for future rounds. Sam in second place, 38th place overall. He also had 28 correct. Now, here's the big thing. He lost Carol, which he had advancing to Sweet 16. So John Wick just haunted his nightmares. Sam, I can't believe Sam made the mistake of going with his heart. I know. Now, we can go way down the list. I I had to go click next a few times. To get down to 217th place. Who was there? Yeah, that's me. (laughs) 25 of 32, right. But I do have all my picks left. Okay. Mike Merrigan, he's even further down. 321st place. Oh, Mike. 24 of 32, right. But all of his picks are left. Now, I am here to give you good news, Josh. You may not win Film Spotting Madness. You might not be the top of the leaderboard. number one. Yeah, number one. You might not even beat... Me or Mike Merrigan. Well, I'm only in this to beat you. I know. But here's the thing. You are going to beat Sam. Mm. We pretty much already know who is going to be watching the Adam Sandler Netflix movie Mm -hmm. next year as punishment. This year, I should say, as punishment. And it's going to be Sam. Yes, Carol is the only movie from round one that he had advancing that he didn't call correctly. But he's got a couple of choices one of them being The Wolf of Wall Street. Okay. I think in his final four. Mm. That I'm just going to say, it doesn't stand much of a chance. Mm, I think Possible, but not likely. Especially, I mean, look, even you're voting against it. I know, round. but I'll just say without spoiling anything for next week, mm-hmm. that it's looking like by next week, Sam could have two of his final four out. Yeah, that's not good. And if that's the case, I don't know a lot about how lose. film spotting madness works, but I'm going to say that's not so, good, Sam. I mean, I'm breathing easier. Yes, I want to beat you. Yes, I want to finish first. But the reality is, I just don't want to have to watch another Adam Sandler movie on Netflix. It hurts, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. You know the pain now. Yeah, especially when you procrastinate and wait <laughs> exactly. until the last possible minute and you have 50 other better films to try to watch. So if you submitted a bracket, you probably know where to check to see how you're doing. We will tell you, though, that you can find it by looking for view full bracket, that link on the Madness homepage, and then you just click on predictions. You can see where you stack up in relation to us and all 678 listeners who participated. One last time, filmspotting.net slash madness. We are very excited to announce that last week, Josh, we tipped the 500 mark 
in terms of family members supporting us on Patreon. And I think at the time we were about four away. I saw it. I put out a tweet and said, whoever is that 500th person, they're going to get the the honor. They're going to be bestowed with the gift of a Sam Van Hallgren nickname that did actually work. Did that propel us to 1,000? It did not. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it did propel us past 500. Nice. So now I'm going to announce the winner, the person who was the 500th supporter, the 500th family member on Patreon, Joseph Grimshaw. And Josh, do you want to do the honors of telling him his nickname? I don't know if I could do this justice, but... Joseph, you are now known as Joseph Gritty Scrimshaw and the Alabaster Moments Grimshaw. That's a mouthful. Yes, it I is. I thought nicknames were supposed to be a little, little more concise, but <laughs> I don't know. This is a, he kind of went in the, the Harry Potter direction here. Maybe I like it. Yeah, I don't question Sam's genius on this, and we can lower it. We can reduce it to just Gritty Scrimshaw if you like. But you know what? And the Alabaster Moments. It, it sounds regal. I think that's when he's announced at like a dinner party. Ah. You use the whole thing. If you're okay. introducing yourself, you just say, I- I'm Joseph Gertie Scrimshaw. Jeff Milo, longtime supporter of the show, has given us a lot of great feedback over the years. He's got a great Sam Van Hallgren nickname. It's Jeff Vagabond Monogamy. <laughs> he wrote in with a little plug. So if you'll indulge us, we would like to share Jeff's thoughts now. Let me tell you what kind of a show these guys are putting on here today. There are thousands of podcasts floating out there on the internet, but how many have been around for 15 years? By the time I started listening, almost nine years ago now, wow, it had already felt like film spotting was much more than a radio show, more than a podcast, even more than an exploration of 21st century film criticism. It long ago had started to feel like I was listening in to something more like a community. It shouldn't be overlooked just how much of a voice that these hosts will give you. There's something to weigh in on every episode. Polls galore. I've told Adam and Josh this before, but let me repeat it for any new listeners. This is the only podcast out of however many in my feed of which I never miss an episode. Through their marathons, top fives, and especially with the madness and best of the decades, it's gotten to where this podcast has facilitated intellectually stimulating ways in which for me to confirm to myself and then articulate just how important the cinematic arts are to me and how essential films have been in the enrichment of my everyday life. So... If this is your sixth or seventh week in a row listening, consider becoming a patron. And my pick for the final four, Mad Max, Inside Lewin Davis, The Master, Moonlight. Yeah. Happy Madness, everyone. So happy Madness to you, Jeff. A formidable final four. Again, Inside Lewin Davis might be in a little bit of trouble, but you've got three other really good choices there. And of course, we appreciate the kind words. We appreciate the encouragement, the encouragement to other film spotting listeners. And, you know, he points out the feeling of community. That's a feeling we felt going back to the earliest days of the show in 2005. It's one of the aspects that I love most about Patreon and it truly feeling like a family. And you've got a group there that you can share exclusive content with. You've got a group that you can run show ideas by and they can weigh in and kind of help point you in the right direction. We just did that last week. So we'd love to have you be part of that community as well. Other benefits that come with your family membership, ad-free episodes, early downloads, most of the time, live show pre-sales and discounts, and a monthly bonus show. The first monthly bonus show dropped a few weeks ago. An eight isn't enough from 84 review of Beverly Hills Cop. That was a fun discussion. And this one I'm really excited about. We pose to family members because 
all these bonus shows are decided by those listeners. We said, which 2005 movie that was reviewed on this show do you think we should revisit for our category called We Were Wrong Once? Your choices were Danny Boyle's Millions, Sin City, or Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. As we are taping this, the polls are still open, Josh. Okay. But by the time people hear this, they will be closed. And is there There is a, a wide enough margin right runner. now that I can say we're going to be talking about Sin City. I like that. It's the right choice in a lot of ways. I think we've touched on that over the previous weeks. But I'm afraid because I was prepared to rethink my position on Revenge of the Sith. I don't want to rethink my position on Sin City. I just want to live with the ignorance of 2005 me thinking it was a really good film. Why do I have to question it? Well, if you start to waver, I might be there to support you. I think, I don't know for sure, I think it might have made my top 10 that year. So I was a very big fan of Sin City. And I'm, I mean, yeah, you're kind of right. Like, I, I don't really want to waver from that. I don't want to go nitpick <laughs> it. But I might have to. What will be particularly interesting there, I think, is in light of some of these other graphic novel adaptations that we've gotten since, how it looks in comparison. Like, yeah. if I was just kind of wowed by that sort of visual style at the time, or if it really was doing something special. More information about how you can hear that episode, how you can vote in future such polls, is available at patreon.com slash filmspotting. And just one quick note as well, inspired by Jeff's comments, he pointed out that the show's been going on for 15 years. Also, when the show drops, it'll be March 6th to the day of our 15-year anniversary. There you go. The start of the show, March 6, 05. And maybe now's a good time then to transition into highlighting our 15th anniversary tour We have been plugging for the past few weeks a show we're really excited about, Friday, June 19th at the Bell House Theater in Brooklyn. We've got a great guest lineup, Slate's Dana Stevens, The New York Times' Aisha Harris, Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore, formerly of Film Spotting SVU. Sam will be there, and we're going to get Griffin Newman from the Blank Check podcast to show up. It's going to be great. We're excited. We hope you're excited. Ticket sales are brisk. They're really good, and we're almost four months out from the show. So I would encourage listeners in the area, if you're thinking about going, go ahead and purchase now. And we're going to be doing, with all those folks coming, we're going to be doing a lot of talking. So at our Chicago show, we did screen Rio Bravo and did some talking there. But for this show, it's going to be us and all those great guests on the mic. We got to narrow down exactly what the topic will be. But yeah, with people like that, whatever we end up talking about, it should be great. Of course, last week... I'm pretty sure I said, hey, by the time you hear this, you might see all the details at our events page, filmspotting.net slash events for our Austin show. And like clockwork, our Austin show fell through. That doesn't mean it's not happening. It doesn't mean it's not happening. A specific place place. We're still coming to Austin. We still plan to come to Austin. We still do need to locate the right venue. And we are efforting on that front. So I wouldn't be afraid. At this point, that we're not coming to Austin, but I don't have any more details for you. And certainly tickets are not going to be on sale this week or the next. But you know what show we are ready to announce? Saturday, May 16th. So a month before the June show in New York City, we're going to be at the Downtown Independent in L.A. And you can get all the information about that by going to filmspotting.net slash events. Big contingent of film spotting listeners out in L.A. Yeah, just got to meet a bunch of them last year on a family trip. So I'm expecting 
everyone who I met will come out for this one and more people. I can't wait. So we've got May in L.A. confirmed. We've got June in New York confirmed. And we're working on Austin after That's that. That's right. And because I learned my lesson, I'm not even going to hint right now about what the content will be yeah, and what just, we have in store for just L.A. Move on. I'm not, I don't want I'm not you to jinx say anything. anything. When it is finalized and 100% confirmed, we will share that information one last time. If you want tickets for June, want some more information about the L.A. show, you can find it at filmspotting.net slash events. And that's also the place where you can get advanced screening passes very often. We are giving away free movie passes to our Chicago area listeners. And right now, you can enter to win passes to see Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. That screening is March 12th. And on March 19th, The Banker, starring Samuel L. Jackson and Anthony Mackie. Well, as they should, the 2010s are going to come down to a top five. Our picks for the five best films of the decade are next. Stay with us. the attorney representing Adrian's trust. I'm required to read a prepared statement. Cecilia, although our relationship was far from perfect, I thought that you would talk to me rather than run away. Are you okay? What happened to him? He cut his wrists. Per his final wishes, you're getting $5 million. Contingent, of course, on the fine print. It can't be ruled to be mentally incompetent. We're trying to slowly turn the page on last year and the last decade and dive into some 2020 films. We really got a chance to do that this past weekend with The Invisible Man. You just heard a clip from the trailer. And this is a film, Josh, that I think has been a pleasant surprise for most critics who have seen it. I'm favorable on it, as I know you are. I think you're a little bit higher, though. So tell me what it was about The Invisible Man that makes you want to recommend it. Yeah, this was really great. I think my expectations for it were based on Elizabeth Moss almost entirely and affection for the 1933 film, though I know this is totally different. But uh, this is really well crafted. Uh, Maybe that's what took me by surprise because the director and the writer here, Lee Wanell, I hadn't seen his previous two films, Insidious Chapter 3 or Upgrade, so didn't quite know what to expect. Uh, But what he does with the camera here, right from the opening scene Mm -hmm. in which Elizabeth Moss is, she basically plays um, the partner of this wealthy but controlling tech entrepreneur who's abusive. And he develops this advanced optics technology. That's where the invisibility angle comes in. But it's really also a story of a woman trying to escape a domestic, a controlling domestic abuser. And so this opening scene is her sneaking out of bed with him in the middle of the night. Uh, and it's very quiet. It's very still. And the way Winnell uses the camera to emphasize the space she's moving mm-hmm. through, how she's trying to become, there's an irony here, right? She's trying to become invisible in this opening scene by moving quietly. And there's one pan he does from yeah. her walking across a room to an empty hall. 
And that's it. He just holds on it for a few seconds. And he'll go back to that technique throughout the film to use empty space to unnerve us. That's it. That was the shot exactly that grabbed me with this film. And you're right, that opening scene is certainly an opening scene of the year candidate. When we talk about those scenes at our end of year rap party, you said it in terms of the stillness and the quiet. It builds tension and dread slowly and quietly and methodically. And also what I loved about it was everything we need to know about their relationship and more than that, who Adrian is. Mm -hmm. And how controlling he is and the stakes of this escape attempt, it's all communicated visually, right? No dialogue whatsoever, certainly no exposition, no backstory. It's just all through this deliberate camera work and editing and through action. It just throws us right into her terror-filled existence. And you're right, that technique he uses of cutting to that hallway shot, this detached kind of POV shot that catches you totally off guard. And you're right, he goes back to it again and again. There's no threat on screen, but with each cut to that different point of view, you almost gasp. It's Mm. as if he has found a way with an edit or with a slow pan to weaponize it against us. Yeah, it's really effective throughout. And speaking to the no dialogue, just the choice to have the first time we see her laying in bed, she has to lift his hand off of her Mm -hmm. to sneak out. You know, it's little things like that. And that's, you know, as, as he pursues her, let's just say, after that point, we won't spoil anything. Um, This becomes really, it's as much of a riff on the 1933 Invisible Man as it is on 1944's Gaslight. Um, And the the mind games that he ends up playing, in addition to the invisibility factor that comes in. So yeah, formally, this was very impressive to me. um, But it's Moss, too. I mean, she more than delivers. Uh, This movie helped me realize it, it, locate kind of one of the things that I think is special about her, and it's that she has she has this wildness behind her eyes almost all the time, but mm-hmm. she varies it in so many effective ways. So you see it in that opening scene when her eyes pop open and she's ready for that plan to escape. And you know she's going to employ every ounce of her intelligence. She's been planning this um, and you see it. But then as this goes on and her paranoia sinks in, as people don't believe her, very much a movie, a metaphor for believing mm-hmm. women who accuse powerful men, right? This movie works on that level too. But then her eyes become wild with almost self-doubt at one point. For sure. You can sense that she doesn't believe herself and then shifts in that final gear to a wildness of rebelliousness and fighting back. And so, again, it's more of a, a, a performance with the eyes and with action than in the dialogue that Moss delivers. But it, it's something I recognize that she does so well in almost every role when she's when her back is against the wall or even when she's the, the aggressor in some cases. Yeah. She has that quality. It really comes out here. Yeah, and I think that performance and some of the choices Winnell makes as a screenwriter and director also are really effective in that the movie does ultimately indict us as viewers, I think. And yes, the central concept is basically, do you really believe women? Are you prepared to believe women in practice or just in theory? Because in practice here, they show you, again, Winnell in collaboration with Moss as an actress and those wild eyes, they show you a woman at her most unstable, Mm -hmm. at her most exhausted, at her most vulnerable, and they could have, I think, made her someone who was a little icier and someone who was more in control. Somehow through all of this, she was someone who avoids becoming the, quote, emotional woman who does come off as crazy to other people. And maybe she's someone who finds a way to put that right face on to the world all the time. But not only would that 
to me, Josh, have felt inauthentic. I don't think it really would have forced us to confront how we would react if we were sitting opposite her mm-hmm. hearing these things, wanting to believe her, but not seeing any evidence. And in fact, seeing a lot of evidence in her right. of someone who seems to be totally deranged. And you're right. Moss, as we've seen her do so many times before, she leans into that instability in this film. And I think it does defy you to believe her which is partly what's so bold about it. Yeah, yeah. And I think the choice she makes to allow some almost, like I said, an ounce of self-doubt sneak in. Yep. Like, am, am I possibly making some of this up? That implicates uh, where our emotions and our feelings go as well. Yeah, in terms of the camera, too, and anyone who's seen the movie will know exactly what scene I'm talking about. There's a moment that so twistedly subverts our expectations of the scene we're watching, oh, yeah. of the movie we're watching. It's established the threat of Adrian, of this invisible presence being mainly a demented, emotional tormentor who also isn't shy about tormenting her physically. We do see that. But there's a line morally, I think, and let's say legally, that we haven't seen it cross, him cross until this moment that I'm thinking about. And the way it unfolds with this almost silly pause, this little pause in a conversation between two people in a scene And them trying to make sense of what's happening within about a three-second span. Mm -hmm. And we as viewers are trying to catch up just like them and make sense of what's occurring. We all do the math way too late, unfortunately. You don't see it coming at all. No. And um, I I also think the timing is part of that. But it's all. this is another thing where Moss's performance, because what she's giving you just before that moment— is her most authentic, desperate plea. Yes. And we are so That's it. hooked in with her right. that our mind shuts off to the possibility of anything else happening. That's right. And I, I feel like we're we're getting too close to spoiling We'll just leave things. it there. There's a couple of, of twists and turns in here that that work really well, I think. And you're right. There is you know some violence before that moment. And it's creepy because of with the invisibility element, those sequences, those attacks almost play like possessions, right? And this is something that maybe from his other horror work, when El brings into it, um, that are really unsettling and terrifying to see someone facing an attacker being being moved and thrown yeah. about by an attacker who we can't see. Yeah, I haven't seen those films, but knowing them just from trailers and from different clips over the years, the paranormal activity type of movies. Yeah, there's a little flavor of that. There is a little bit Uh in some of those kitchen scenes where this invisible presence is literally lifting her off the ground or things are happening in corners of the space that maybe shouldn't be happening. But I do really appreciate how Winnell manages to make us so engaged as viewers that even just coming around a corner It's almost like we're shifting in our seats trying to look before she looks because we assume something might be there or jump out at her and harm her in some way. I do think that scene, though, that we're both talking about is maybe one of the best in the film, if not the best in the film. I do think it's probably the apex of the movie. I'll just say that the bloodier and more gruesome the movie gets, the more absurd it got for me, which was a problem only because I felt like up until that point, it did a really effective job of asking us to suspend disbelief, of getting us to suspend disbelief, because it really establishes the rules of this world and this torment so cleverly. Well, I I will say 
I haven't gone back to really walk through the intricacies of the plot and the various um, plots that are yes. put into play here, partly because I'm afraid they might not stand up under right. scrutiny. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. We move from The Invisible Man to another movie that you had a chance to see. And I'll just be honest, I don't know that I'm going to make time for this movie. I would if it was a movie. I felt like, Josh, you strongly urged me to go see felt like it was an essential movie of the year. You definitely like Ben Zeitlin's last film, Beasts of the Southern Wild, a lot more than I did. But Wendy doesn't seem to be moving people a lot. You liked it, though. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's a good litmus test because we were on opposite sides when it came to Beasts of the Southern Wild. And I would say that Wendy is only for people who really went for Beasts of the Southern Wild. This is not going to change anyone's opinion of Ben Zeitlin. So I am not going to be this movie's champion, but I feel like I want to be its protector. (laughs) (laughs) I sort of feel, I was thinking about it the other day, and it's kind of like if this film had come out, and this is a very loose adaptation of the Peter Pan story, um, just to set up the plot a little bit. It centers on a young girl, a little girl named Wendy, played by Devin France. She lives sort of a dull life above her mother's diner at a train stop. And one night she sees this figure scampering across the top of a train. So she and her twin brothers follow him. And it takes this adventure takes them all to this uninhabited island where there are other rambunctious children and it becomes a riff on, on Peter Pan. You know, I was thinking how if we had seen this first, it's uneven. It doesn't all work. But there are those flourishes of just unique magic that Beast had where I think people would say, we're all really excited about where this director is going to go. Um, This is a golden brick (laughs) type of film. Um, But coming on the heels of Beast of the Southern Wild, which I doubt there's going to be anyone who likes Wendy better, it does feel like a drop off. It feels like less than control. It feels, you know what it feels like? All of the elements that worked so well in Beasts have been overcooked just a few degrees. So even the young cast, think about Quavangene Wallace as Hush Puppy, just had such a natural presence, even though she was given some kind of over the top, or not over the top, but grandiloquent voiceover narration. Somehow it worked. She made that work. The child actors here, they're also inexperienced and They just don't sell it in the same way. They don't sell the material in the same way, so it seems like it's tougher to buy. The music, um, you may remember Zeitlin did the score along with Dan Romer for Beasts, one of the things I like the most. Here, it's just Romer. It has a similar triumphant quality, but it almost feels like it's yanked into scenes to pump them up rather than where in Beasts, to me, it seemed to emerge from the characters, emerge from the actions. Um, And the narrative itself is just, you know, it is more snippets. It more it's more riffs on Peter Pan than it is this anything that coheres into something you can get your arms around. So there are some still some really ambitiously imaginative images here from the kids playing, you know, doing some shadow play against a cliff. There's another, there's a creature, an undersea behemoth um, that kind of just shifts your understanding of what am I watching. Um, and so things like that, at its best, this movie. There's a series of drawings that Wendy does, imagining a, a a world she'd like to go to. At its best, the movie kind of has us dive headfirst into those. And you can see how that's where Zeitlin's talent might be, is bringing such stuff to life. But a lot of the stuff around it also feels forced. So um, be nice to Wendy. Okay. <laughs> I'm asking people. You know, I think it's the kind of, it's the easy movie that you could stomp on, especially if you didn't like Beasts. 
and you can say, this yeah. is what I was talking that's, about. That's what I was just going to say. Using your own words, there were some of us who didn't hate yeah. beasts by any means and who recognized the imagination yeah. and the imagination behind those images and the ambition of it, but thought it was overcooked. Right. So then if this you're one felt like that this. way to you, you're then, not going to like this. Yeah, Wendy might not be the stuff for me. It's out in limited release right now. The Invisible Man is currently playing in wide release. If you see either movie and agree or disagree with our thoughts, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Hello, Adam and Josh. This is Noah calling from the University of South Carolina. My pick for the best film of the decade is Bennett Miller's 2011 film, Moneyball. Moneyball has everything I love about film. It brings a sense of wonder and awe, and it mixes it beautifully with personal emotion and stakes. No line in the movie encapsulates what makes it so great more than how can you not be romantic about baseball, because it's truly a romantic film. The love story here is between two people. It's between Billy Bean and the game. The relationship changes over the course of the film in much the same way as that film depicts relationships between two people. At the start of the film, they're at a low, they lose to the Yankees, and a lot of the magic and passion has faded because of uh, the ownership of the Oakland Athletics. Um, but it's the introduction of sabermetrics and a new management strategy that rekindles their relationship and sparks a new passion. It reminds me of the finale of Cheers when Sam realizes that the bar is his true love not Diane. Billy Bean comes to a similar realization with the help of Jonah Hill's character and his daughter. On top of all that, it's my favorite Brad Pitt performance, and Moneyball is the best depiction of professional sports in film. Thanks, guys. Thank you for that, Noah. We get back into our countdown of the top 10 films of the 2010s with that voicemail from Noah. Bennett Miller's Moneyball, a movie that I haven't seen get a whole lot of attention on those best of the decade lists that came out in a lot of places, most of them around December. But I love, as you know, Brad Pitt's performance in that movie. It's a movie that on multiple viewings got even better for me. I liked it. I've come to really like the film. And for whatever reason, and I used to be a baseball guy. I read the book Moneyball, so I guess I'm the target audience, but it's a movie that I find eminently rewatchable whenever it comes on TV and I happen yeah. to be flipping past it. Yeah, it's an easy watch. It's a good film. And I think a lot of people um, hold it in high estimation. But yeah, I think uh, that's about the highest I've ever seen anyone place yeah. it to put it up there uh, at the top spot. So I'm afraid it didn't make my top 20 cut. Well, we're going to find out what made your top five cut. Here we are, the top picks, the five films you love most from the 2010s. Let's start with number five. Okay, here we go. Number five, Get Out. This is a pick where a cultural context, I think, is probably going to come into play more than most. I, I did know that I had to recognize Jordan Peele emerging as one of the decade's most exciting filmmakers. And you know what? I couldn't tell you which film between this and us I think is better. I, I've, I've thought about that briefly and then just stopped because it's pointless. But here, I feel like it made sense to go with Get Out just to acknowledge acknowledge it as a breakout, acknowledge the influence that it has had. Now, when I wrote about Get Out in 2017, I wondered if it would start a new wave of racially charged genre films. So similar to what we saw with the black exploitation genre, which was, you know, partly born out of the civil rights era, one of the things that gave birth to it. Well, since Get Out, which followed Black Lives Matter and other social justice movements of the 2010s, we've gotten black conscious genre films that are mostly remakes and sequels. Think of stuff like Shaft, Superfly, 
The First Purge or Tales from the Hood 2. We've also gotten, though, police dramas like Blind Spotting and The Hate You Give. I think you could probably throw Black Panther in there as a genre film. And it certainly looks like the upcoming Candyman could be included in that sort of group, too. Um, so I do think Get Out was, um, if not, you know, the cause of some of these things, part of them and, and captured something that was in the air. Um, now, specifically to horror, writing at the Chicago Reporter last summer, Robin Means Coleman wrote this. Black actors have always had a role in horror films, but something different is taking place today. Again, this was last summer she was writing. The reemergence of true black horror films. Rather than simply including black characters, many of these films are created by blacks, star blacks, or focus on black life and culture. So you really can't talk about the decade in movies, I think, without talking about the movie that did, in a, in a way, start this, Get Out, which, by the way, let's just point out, is also a damn good horror flick. I For mean, sure. It, it could have a spot on this list without any of this influential stuff I'm talking about. Uh, the taut tension of that opening abduction scene in supposedly safe suburbia, the woozy terror of the sunken place mm-hmm. sequence, which has, you know, seeped into our collective yeah. consciousness. And, you know, that gory grand ending as well. Those are all all more good reasons for Get Out to be on this list. Yeah. And there's some great humor there, too, as mm-hmm. you would expect. From oh, Jordan yeah, Peele sure. amidst all that terror. Get Out, a wonderful choice, a movie that I was a big fan of in 2017, made my top five, I'm pretty sure, that year. But I had a different film from 2017 coming in at the number five slot. It was my favorite of that year. And yeah, we're going to have to laugh a little bit because as we get through the rest of my picks, it's going to get a lot heavier. It's Lady Bird from director and writer Greta Gerwig. I mentioned this last week that in early drafts of this top 20, there was one or two filmmakers who had two movies in the top 20. Gerwig was one of them because Little Women was also on this list eventually bumped out but Lady Bird I knew was destined for my top five and it was funny a few weeks ago Sam our producer re-watched Francis Ha and he called it a spiritual sequel to Lady Bird and of course it is it had never really occurred to me because I hadn't thought about Francis Ha in many years but if you jumped past Christine Lady Bird McPherson going to college and went right to basically her early 30s or mm-hmm. those late 20s yeah. You would have Francis Ha, of course, a movie co-written by and starring Gerwig. And in Lady Bird, we've got Saoirse Ronan playing a version of Gerwig herself. That made me really badly want to revisit Francis Ha and also reappraise it. I liked it at the time, but it wasn't a film that seemed like it had a shot at my top 20 or even top 50 or maybe even top 100 of the decade. But as we've seen in Madness, a lot of listeners and a lot of cinephiles out there who really do appreciate that movie. But I bring Francis Ha up not only because of those connections, but because I started to watch it the other day on Netflix. I just needed something on and I saw Sam's comments about it and I thought I'll turn Francis Ha on and see how it holds up. I haven't had a chance to give it a full viewing yet, but I saw that line that I loved at the time which was her saying, I think it's to Adam Driver, actually, his character, who's a guy she just goes out with after meeting him at a party. She says, I'm so embarrassed I'm not a real person yet. And I think there's an implication there in what she's saying that what she really means by saying not a real person is that she's not an adult yet. And there's a negative connotation to the idea of being a real person as in a boring person person, a responsible person who kind of has their stuff together, but maybe there's some costs that come along with that. But you think about that in terms of Lady Bird, isn't that all the Lady Bird character is striving for? 
even with all of that drama and artifice. And I would say, in fact, using all of that drama and artifice, including the moniker, her name, she bestowed upon herself. And there's so many <laughs> lines, but the one after she has her first sexual encounter with Timothy Chalamet and says, I was on top. You know, there's this this performative aspect to her. And she's just so desperately yearning for realness. I think she's trying so hard to turn into the woman she thinks she can be as quickly as possible. And as fascinating as that all is, of course, it's just also so well acted, not only by Ronan, by Chalamet, Lucas Hedges in a role as a first love interest, and those parents. Oh, thank you. So good. Thank you, Greta Gerwig, for reminding us if we'd forgotten how amazing Laurie Metcalf is as a yeah. mother, but also for giving us Tracy Letts, who has made film appearances over the years, but is now having this renaissance. And I love seeing him pop up in so many movies, including Little Women. And without studying the IMDb closely, I'm going to give Gerwig a lot of credit for putting him in that role as her father and really showing the world what he could do on screen. Did you know that Alanis Morissette wrote this song in only 10 minutes? I believe it. <laughs> so... I'm applying to a couple East Coast schools. I need you to help me with the financial aid application, but mom can't know. We, uh, aren't they quite expensive? First, yes, that's why financial aid. Second, I have to get in first. Mom won't be happy about it. Which is why I don't want to fight about it before I have to. Just pull over here. Are you sure? I, I can no. drive you to the front. This is fine. I like to walk. Well, love you. So, what do you think about college? See what I can do. Thanks, Dad. I love you, too. Have a good day at work. Hey, I'm like Keith Richards. I'm just happy to be anywhere. It's also just so clear Gerwig knows these characters in this world so intrinsically and is able to look back on it now and see all the imperfections, but also the aspects that nourished her and that made the place home, in this case, Sacramento, seeing how even the locations are shot how beautiful they are and almost this nostalgic longing she brings to them, even as Lady Bird herself in the moment isn't ready to appreciate what she has in Sacramento just yet. And of course, it's just so damn funny and smart and poignant. I, I hate to do this, but some of these lines looking at the quotes today, Josh, like that conversation she has with her mother where Marion says, I want you to be the best version of yourself that you can be. And she says, what if this is the best version? And she says, of course, I love you. And she says, yeah, but do you like me? And how about her dad, Let, saying, you're not going to get in a car with a guy that honks, are you? When Chalamet, I think, <laughs> rolls up. And Chalamet's character is saying to her at one point, you're going to have so much unspecial sex in your life. And one last one, when she's talking to a sister at the school, she goes to one of the nuns. And the nun is talking about something she wrote. I don't recall if it was a poem or a short story, but she's describing Sacramento. And she says, the way you describe it, it comes across as love. And Lady Bird says, sure, I guess I pay attention. And the sister says, don't you think maybe they're the same thing, love and attention? I mention these lines just because these are great bits of dialogue and insights into life, honestly, and certainly coming of age, that they're sacred. They should be sacred. 
to more people. That's how they feel to me. And that's why Lady Bird's in my top five. So you forced upon yourself by limiting one director. One director could only, you had to choose, like I had to choose between Get Out and Us. Yeah. You had to choose between Little Women and Lady Bird. I went with Lady Bird and who knows, maybe if it was reversed and Little Women had come out earlier and I had a little bit more distance, yeah. that would be on my list at the same time. I don't think she makes Little Women, obviously, without right. the experience yeah. of making Lady it's Bird. It's hard to imagine. So. That's true. All right. Number four is Isle of Dogs in 2018. Now, somewhat like my Hail Caesar pick, this is this is going to be my idiosyncratic choice from another one of my favorite filmmakers. So maybe not the way most people would go with the Coens and where most people would go with Wes Anderson. You have my thanks and my blessing if you want to put the Grand Budapest Hotel or Moonrise Kingdom on this list. But for me, it's going to be Isle of Dogs, his second stop-motion feature about dogs who have been deported to a fictional Japanese trash island by this authoritarian, cat-loving mayor. Now, this is not just a kitty lark. I don't think Fantastic Mr. Fox is a kitty lark either, but it's more of one. Kitty with D's, not yeah, T's. I don't, yeah, I don't. You know, <laughs> I don't. a dog do, movie. I don't do that, Adam. <laughs> You're not into puns, are no. you? No. This is a really sophisticated film. It's probably among his more narratively and formally sophisticated efforts, actually. But also, it is a deeply political work of art. This is a sly referencing of one of America's great past shames, the internment of Japanese Americans, to spotlight one of the country's current great shames, its abusive treatment of migrants, including little children, pointedly at the border with Mexico. So, yeah. There are cute dogs in this, an absolutely stunning animation, as well as Anderson's usual wit and sentiment. It has all the stuff that I love from him in all his other movies. It also happens to be, if you didn't notice, um, a pretty thoughtful meditation on the nature of free will. If you absolutely. Wanna, if you want to go down that route. Without a doubt. It's all there for you. But Isle of Dogs, here, I, I, is this a pun? It also bites. It has bite, a lot of bite in a way that's particular to the 2010s. I'm proud of you. And I absolutely agree with you. It's funny that we sometimes see Anderson differently or you adore different films more than I do, but we were in lockstep on Isle of Dogs and we're in lockstep that it's the better Anderson film from the 2010s than the Grand Budapest Hotel. I think I probably still put Moonrise Kingdom just slightly higher, but you're right. As you consider it for sure as a 2010 film, I think back not only on It's being a meditation on free will and the choices people make. But these individuals coming together as a collective and trying to decide what they actually stand for and how they're going to act in the world. And that's as 2010 and 2020 and beyond as anything, right? This notion that as things get darker and bleaker, you do have choices to make. And are you going to retain a sense of civility or not? You heard the rumor, right, about Buster? Not sure. Can you remind Who's Buster? Uh, my brother from another litter. What happened to him? Suicided. Hanged himself by his own leash. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. I want my master. <laughs> uh, you make me sick. I've seen cats with more balls than you dogs. Stop licking your wounds! You hungry? Kill something and eat it. You sick? Take a long nap. You cold? Dig a hole in the ground, crawl into it, and bury yourself. But nobody's giving up around here, and don't you forget it. Ever. Speaking of choices, the choice to have a lot of the dialogue of the main human character, Atari, in Japanese, Mm -hmm. 
except for that one line, who are we, yep. that he delivers at the end. That's in English because that's the one we really that's need to hear. That's the movie. So we shared a 2017 title at number five, films from 2017, and in our number four slots, I think probably we're going to have our most idiosyncratic picks, our most personal and perhaps surprising picks. And we had a couple of choices in part one before I announce the title, build up suspense a little bit here, Josh. We had a couple of choices in part one that were fundamentally about what makes us human. Ex Machina on your list, Under the Skin for me, I think we both had them at number 11. Well, Never Let Me Go from director Mark Romanek can join those to form a really nice triple bill. And of course, Alex Garland, the writer and director of Ex Machina, the writer here on Never Let Me Go. Of course, the creatures or the beings that we see, the others that we see in Never Let Me Go aren't alien, like in Under the Skin, and they're not AI, like in Ex Machina, but they are man-made. They're clones. I did get a chance to rewatch this movie. I knew when I was putting this list together that I was going to have to watch Never Let Me Go again. And all of the same moments and character interactions and ideas that so moved me in 2010 all moved me again. The secondhand toys that these kids who are at this small private school get and them being so valuable all because the kids want them. And that metaphor extending to the children themselves who are perceived by society as only having value insofar as it relates to the function they serve and they have a direct function in society. This whole idea that what makes them human perhaps is their ability to love and to feel love. I think the movie makes us question that. And the idea behind the school we come to learn, which is that they were looking for the human soul through art and what the kids create. All those ideas really resonate with me. But there were also a few things that stood out to me this time. All the variations on real things or originals and fake ones that we get in the movie, including the real love of Kathy, played by Carrie Mulligan and Tommy, Andrew Garfield versus the fake love of Tommy and Kira Knightley's Ruth, that being just one of them. And also, I was struck by the drabness of the world that we see around these kids when they do venture out away from the school and get out into life and they do interact with, quote unquote, real humans. I think it could be reflective of Romantic's choice to focus on the world that the main characters inhabit. They don't venture outside very often, so we don't see a lot of that environment. But what we do see, Josh, for a society that has the benefit of this technological advance, longer, healthier lives, it doesn't seem any more joyful. In fact, it seems less happy. And maybe I think the suggestion is that there's been a psychological toll that this progress has taken. And I think we actually see that there has because Romantic shows us something I wasn't really paying attention to the first one or two times I saw this movie back in 2010, he shows us that invariably whenever these donor kids meet real humans out in society, those humans view them with a combination of total consternation and outright contempt. And it isn't merely that they're different, though that's part of it, or that they're inferior. What hit me this time, Josh, is I think it's the guilt. I think it's the the recognition that there's been a compromise, that these are children fundamentally no different than their own at home, and they've doomed them to this life all for their comfort, also that they can live really a little bit longer. And that's that's all it is. The great closing line or the closing sentiment from Carrie Mulligan's Kathy H. character, she says, we all complete. That's what makes us human. 
Science ultimately, at least in this world, it can't solve death and the world that we currently live in. It can't solve death. That is what unites us. At the same time, Josh, another movie that indicts us as viewers, I think it says, well, if we were in the shoes of these guilty people, would we really be any different? Would we make different choices or would we choose longer life? Would we choose what we think is going to be more happiness? I'll just close with Roger Ebert, who gave this movie four out of four stars and who so famously gave us the quote that movies are like a machine that generates empathy. He said about this film, it's a movie about empathy. And maybe that's why I love it so much and actually value just a little bit more than even Under the Skin and Ex Machina, movies that are darker and more cynical about human nature. And usually that falls right into line with my worldview as well. But Never Let Me Go asks us, I think, to try to understand and share the choices and experiences of others in a way that few movies I can think of do. Suppose for a second this rumor is true that there is a special arrangement for Helsham students if they're in love. Well, there would have to be some kind of way to decide if couples are telling the truth and not, not just lying to put off their, their donations. That's what the gallery could be for. In the gallery, they have everything about us they need to know. So if we say that we're in love, then they can look into our souls and they can see. They, 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 they'll know if it's real love or if it's just a lie. That's a strange idea, Tommy. Yeah, it sounds like you found a, a romanticism in it yes. in a way that that was missing for me. This is one, if I'd known it was going to be on your list, I probably would have tried to rewatch because I was on the fence about it at the time. And it is the setting, the story, the idea is very much something that should appeal to me. So I'm not quite sure what held me back. I'm going to admit maybe it was, and you know we're on opposite sides of this, about reading the book before you see the movie. Did you? I really liked the Ishiguro novel um, that yeah. this is drawn upon. And maybe this was a case, usually I feel like I can separate those two things. Maybe it was just a case where that was in my head too much um, and that world had been preformed. Absolutely. Um, and, and that uh, it, it there wasn't the surprise or Right. Um, maybe the romanticism was more on the page for me than on the screen. Yeah, and it might have been. I maybe love, if I read it, I'd find that it's an inferior adaptation. But. Well, and it, that doesn't, you know, that at the end of the day, it's about the movie. And at the end of the day, I love any pick that's going to be on your list that like no one else is going to have. Right. So this this is I like that very yeah. much. No, you definitely talk about adaptations and you know my theory on that. And it's not so much what I think you or anyone else should do. But what I do think is almost at this point unquestionable. If you look at the reviews of both this movie and another one I adore, which is another one I didn't read the book ahead of time, still haven't read it, Atonement hmm. from Ian McEwan. If you read the reviews of people who were mixed on it to negative or even just liked it but weren't yeah. anywhere near as rapturous, invariably they all read the book. It's true with Never Let Me Go as well. Overall, good Rotten Tomato scores, but I do think there's something about the surprise element to it and just the abundance of detail and information you get in the book. Maybe it somehow can't match up to it. That said, one of the things I understand about the book and the way it's different than the movie is that the movie doesn't actually try to make the reveal much of a surprise at all. It comes fairly early in the movie, and it's even hinted 
early on, maybe not explicitly spelled out until around the 20 or 30 minute mark, but it's hinted at the reality of these children. I think the book actually does take a little bit more time. So it's not a case where necessarily Romantic was trying to cash in on that element of surprise or make that a key part of his film. But yeah, I, I adore this film and I was so pleased to find that it didn't disappoint and in fact was just a more rich film for that second viewing. All right, my number three comes from 2016. Actually, four of my top 10 came out in 2016. So it's funny, we've been talking about how great a year 2019 was. And, yeah. um, but for this list, at least, it was all about 2016. And at number three, I have Moonlight, director Barry Jenkins' triptych portrait of a boy growing up black and gay in contemporary Florida. Now, talk about moments and images that have stuck with me from the decade. And that was sort of a, a criteria that I used. What are these movies I just find myself suddenly uh, a few seconds from will seep into my brain for some reason? I can't tell you how often Moonlight's swimming lesson, which is really its baptism scene, pops into my head. Let your head rest in my hand. Relax. I got you. I promise. I'm not going to let you go. Hey, man, I got you. There you go. Ten seconds. That right there? You're in the middle of the world. First, it's just beautiful filmmaking. The bobbing camera the caressing strings on the score, Mahershala Ali's encouraging words there. Altogether, it wonderfully encapsulates what Moonlight does best, I think, meet its characters with love, claim them as its own, as as people worth paying attention to, and as having stories that are worth hearing. I mean, really, the whole movie is a baptism in that sense. And I love going back to that scene that Little's baptism, played by Alex Hibbert at this point, is administered by a sinner, Mahershala Ali's Juan. Um, I love that dichotomy going on there. So I'm with you, Adam, that Barry Jenkins' If Beale Street Could Talk is a treasure, too. But Moonlight is the one that I'm I'm happy to not be able to shake that just keeps yeah. floating floating back into my mind. For me it's the conversations that come in that third part of the film with Andre Holland and yeah just to be able to shift his into past a whole another gear yeah. and somehow be of the same tenor, right? But with completely different actors in a different era taking into account the changes each mm-hmm. character has gone through. It's 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 amazing. <laughs> Great choice. And I know you'll feel like my number three is a great choice because I'm pretty sure it's your number two. It's a film from the year. I think I said last week that was the most represented on my list, 2011. And it's Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life. And let's just put our cards on the table here. It is your number two film, right? My number two. So it's the next one coming up. Let's just talk about it. Or try to talk about it because we've done fairly recently our top five Terrence Malick scenes. A while back in 2014, we did our top five films of the film spotting era. We talked about this film quite a bit. It came up again in some discussion about A Hidden Life, Malick's most recent film on our end of year roundtable. And really, in terms of running out of words, you kind of almost wrote a book about it with your book, Movies Are Prayers. I mean, Tree of Life is featured. It shows up. It makes a few appearances. Yeah. I think, like me, you were feeling as if you had very little new to potentially say about this film. Yeah, I mean, that's that's part of it. I've revisited the movie a number of times over the years. I've, you know, I've led sessions at schools about this movie. But really, it's it's not so much that I've run out of things to say that I'm kind of paralyzed 
when it comes to justifying why it should be one of the, if not the best movie of the decade, the second best. Yeah. I could make the case it's one of the all-time greats. I mean, when if we get to ever updating our sight and sound, you know, the best of all time list yes. that we did a number of years ago, um, I might have to think about getting it on there. It's And the thing about The Tree of Life is its greatness can't be explained. For all the blathering we've been doing, mm-hmm. it just has to be experienced. It, it's kind of a representation of this new cinema Malik invented. Um, it's clearly his best, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Though, I mean, I also love Badlands and some of his other films, but Tree of Life is his masterpiece. It's the most Malik of Malik and and it's that's the most Malik that works yes, for me because absolutely. he he has made other you know masterful films but there are some that have held me at a distance and this is the one where you know that ethereal nature the transcendent nature is matched with a grunginess so a rootedness in the earth yeah I think. and we were talking about whether or not we had anything really new to say about it my favorite new thoughts about the film came about. As I watched A Hidden Life and I expressed them on that show in December. So there's nothing kind of novel here. But that idea that I touched on where he's making movies that are trying to do something similar to what Paul Schrader was trying to do with his take on transcendental films of first reform, except going about it, obviously, in a completely different aesthetic Mm -hmm. way. But that idea of striving striving towards the ineffable and the invisible that's the way schrader described transcendental cinema and i feel like that despite having none of the other characteristics so perfectly encapsulates what malik is up to especially in this film now what's fascinating about that is that you said at our live show and i don't disagree with you that he's maybe our most christian filmmaker or he's coming at it with that christian background And yet for me, when I think about the tree of life and that striving for the ineffable and the invisible, I see it in secular things. It's in the everyday. It's in the embraces. It's in nature. It's in a father touching his child. It's all these things that you can't necessarily ascribe to God, though I suppose some people would say that gorgeous waterfall absolutely is only due to God and his will. But I see it in those mundane things things. And that image for me that's so striking, and there's so many of them, I kind of don't know where to start with the Tree of Life, but I was thinking so much today about that image of the two siblings. We don't even know which two they really are, but it's definitely a kid who's a toddler and a slightly older child, and they're walking in the street, and the camera is moving, of course, as it would be, right, with Malik. And it's essentially upside down or something, and it's tracking their two shadows. What we're seeing are the two shadows in the road. And if you remember talking about boyhood, go back to Link later for a second. I talked about him showing us the magic in the mundane. But the more I thought about it, what I realized was it's more accurate to say that just by filming the mundane, he makes it important. And here I'm riffing off Greta Gerwig, too, in Little Women, that conversation that Joe and Amy have where she says basically that just by writing about something, domestic life, the troubles of this family, that makes it important. I think that Linklater, just by capturing those conversations that he does and those struggles, makes it important. But here's what Malik does different. He takes the everyday and makes you see it as if you're seeing it for the first time. So it's not the mundane as magical. It's the mundane as miraculous. And mm-hmm. Malik's the only one who can pull it off. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, 
As far as the mundane thing, I, I do another little podcast on the side where we always say there's no such thing as secular. So your reading is exactly right, Adam. That, yeah. that's a, he's showing that. He's like demonstrating that with each image that he puts in front of a camera. And that doesn't mean everything is hunky-dory or everything is just, you know, aesthetically pleasing. Um, right. He manages to find the spiritual in the difficult as well. Um, that's one of the things he's searching for is trying to reconcile those two things. Another miracle about the Tree of Life is, you know, the way it mixes the cosmic and the intimate. Think about, you know, yes, most of the story is drawn from his childhood in suburban Texas with, you know, as uh, with siblings. But he also makes this about uh, more than just this personal universe, but also the larger universe, right? The, the, the loves and desires of this family, this mother and father and brothers, their triumphs, their failures, it, they all ripple out into the cosmic. Um, and then they reverberate back again. He's going back and forth in this movie through all of time, across time as well. I mean, this is a movie that manages family, dinner table, drama, and dinosaurs and connects them yes. and gives them the same existential weight. <laughs> Absolutely. I, and every time I watch it, I'm not quite sure how. So so The Tree of Life is radical. It's gorgeously filmed. I can't believe it's not my number one. I can't either. And I kind of can't believe it's not my number one or number two. I've got it at number three. But I had to go with a Paul Thomas Anderson pick at number two, and it is from 2012. It's The Master, another film I feel like I've kind of exhausted my thoughts on over the years. So I thought I'd try something different. I'm going to share with you some thoughts from Owen Gleiberman. I don't know if you saw this. It circulated on Twitter a little bit in late December. Writing for Variety, he posted his 10 most overrated films of the decade. Oh, yeah, I remember this. He said, I compiled this roster of movies. I think got this far go well, too much it? love from my critical colleagues because I suspect I may not be alone. The films, by definition of their being here, have their avid fans and defenders, but maybe they've got their detractors too. At any rate, they've certainly had their praises sung, so I figured it was time to toss a few raspberries into the bouquet of Hosannas. And here I'm going to be petty and point out that raspberries is misspelled. It's missing the P. So you know what? If you're going to take down <laughs> some of these sacred cows, you got to remember the P and raspberries, Owen. His number 10 was my number 13 film of the decade, Margaret. His number please, five. Please don't go through all of his. It's not all of them. Okay. Just the ones that overlap with us, Josh. Okay. His number five was Under the Skin, my number 11. Okay. And at number three, my number 10, your number 20, The Act of Killing. Those all, according to him, among I mean, the top 10 most overrated of the what, decade. What is, what's the point? What? Guess what? Well, it's, it's to provide a counterpoint. Uh, no, I know your and point. It's, it's I'm asking what was his point. To allow me something to riff on here, Josh. <laughs> That's what it is. His number one overrated film of the decade the master <sighs> he says movie fanatics including this one bow down at the altar of certain directors but where does reverence leave off and cult worship begin to say that paul thomas anderson is the most revered filmmaker of his generation would be an understatement he's the gen x genius who can do no wrong i myself was once a true believer i've seen boogie nights 50 times and love magnolia but as Anderson's career went on, his free-flowing human touch began to leak away, only to be replaced by a fixation on toxic male monomaniacs that's a tad unsettling and mostly baffling. And the master, without a doubt, is Anderson's most insanely acclaimed head-scratcher. For a while, there's undeniable intrigue in its tale of a slippery and tormented World War II vet, Joaquin Phoenix, who becomes the disciple, it says here, discipline. I mean, I'm, I'm copy-editing this thing to death, 
of a cracked religious huckster guru, Philip Seymour Hoffman modeled on L. Ron Hubbard. Yet the more the movie goes on, the less it adds up. Its enigmas come to seem like tricks that Anderson is playing on you. For members of the Church of PTA, the master has often been cited as his crowning masterpiece. For those of us who escaped the cult, it's the most potent sign yet of a film artist who lost touch with his greatness. And he says that, lost touch with his greatness, about the film The Master that preceded Inherent Vice and Phantom Thread. So we're, we're just, most of us, not on the same wavelength, obviously, with Owen at all, except, you know, he does point out the enigmas of it, and you didn't deny yeah. that as much either last week, well, pointed out is, that it's a film that you still kind of feel like you're trying to wrap your head around. Yeah, there's a bit of distance there. Yeah, and, and so there's, there's, there's a, an inscrutability to it. There I get is. it. And there's also a difference, I, I would say, why I'm scoffing at this list, is there's a difference between offering a counter to, to being a contrarian with a well-founded opinion, which he's offering there. He's giving you some reasons than making a list that's just kind of poking at people yeah. about their favorite films. Yeah, and that idea he had, that line about fixating on toxic male monomaniacs, I think it's more accurate to say a fixation on deconstructing and destroying toxic male monomaniacs. I think we definitely see that to an extent in Phantom Thread mm-hmm. and in The Master. And I guess I don't find that particularly baffling or unsettling. Some words here from a listener, Tanner, Lexington, Kentucky. If the master were only the processing scene, it would still crack my personal top five. But since it has so much more than that one scene, it has to be my number one choice. It includes not only the undisputed best scene of the decade, but the undisputed best two performances. And it is the ultimate example of PTA's incredible ability to make you feel something, even if you are not sure why. So I think Tanner, to an extent, they're acknowledging that they're are elements of the master that puzzle and confound. But yes, feel something. That's what Freddie Quell, Joaquin Phoenix character, I think, is seeking. He's suffering from this malaise due to the trauma of war. So desperate to feel anything when we meet him, I think in the opening scene, he's drinking ethanol from a bombshell. Mm-hmm. And we see him at other points drinking some concoction of these terrible poisons, basically. But that's there because normal alcohol, Normal drugs, they aren't enough for Freddie Quell. And then he has to assimilate somehow back into the world of 1950s America, the nuclear family and suburbs and barbecues and booming corporations. And he is an absolute misfit within this world who finds in Lancaster Dot a guiding force, someone who exists completely outside of all that rigidity and has that same kind of power that he's looking for, that same kick he gets from those drinks he needs in another human being. He needs to make some other connection, and he finds it in him until he no longer does. I certainly feel a lot when I watch The Master, and it's one just like Moonlight for you that I go back to the imagery of a lot in my head. Oh, some gorgeous imagery in this movie. A big fan of it as well. I'll say this for The Master is when you place it among Anderson's other films— It's most distinctly one of the most distinctly his alongside, I'd say, Punch Drunk Love. I, I, you know, I've talked about before how I see a lot of his movies working in the tradition of a previous master. So even Phantom Thread, which I had in my top 20, is his Hitchcock Mm -hmm. film 
There Will Be Blood, his Wells Citizen Kane film, and Magnolia being his Altman film. This, like Punch Drunk Love, like you feel like only Paul Thomas Anderson could have made this movie. Yeah. And it's not in the in the footsteps really of anything as clearly as those others are. And so I absolutely respect it for that. And I think maybe that's part of the inscrutability too, is because we're a we're a bit more at sea with it. Um, we're not in in a familiar. It's not even genre, but a but a familiar uh, filmmaking tradition um, of masters. Yeah, um, that we are in some of his other movies. Yeah, Boogie Nights, his Scorsese. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely, and you're right. As much as even a film like There Will Be Blood feels like it's. Andersonian. I think it's fair to not only make the Wells comparison, but maybe to John Huston. And there's some John Huston overtones in this movie as well. He was influenced by one of his post-war movies. So that element's there. But I, I am absolutely in agreement with you that it's the one that feels truly unique as an Anderson film. Yeah, I can't imagine anyone else doing it. No. Number one. We're at number one. Okay, so what... If it's not Tree of Life, what is it? <laughs> what is it? Uh... It's Mad Max Fury Road. Okay. From 2015. You didn't disappoint. I ultimately feel good about this, even over the Tree of Life, because Mad Max Fury Road, it's probably the movie on my top 10 list I've watched the most. And this is because came out in 2015. In 2018, at Ebert Interruptus, we did Mad Max Fury Road, which means we spent four days going through this movie virtually shot by shot, scene by scene, image by image. Um, quick plug, I'm going to be there again this April, 6 through 9. Uh, at the Conference on World Affairs, we're doing Agnes Varda's Cleo from 5 to 7. So more details at filmspotting.net slash events. But yeah, just looking at Fury Road that closely and a number of times, you know, we spent a lot of time on the themes of the movie um, and on the story of the movie, the world that this created. But mostly we broke down exactly why director George Miller made Really, I think, along with his filmmaking team, one of the greatest action films ever made. I mean, the pacing of this thing, the editing of it, the color, uh, the vehicle and production design, those choices, costuming. You don't think of costuming always when it comes to action movies, but the way the costumes come into play and, of course, the music, it all creates that zen chaos I love where you never quite knew what was going to happen, but you always knew what had happened. You never lost your bearings as insane as that movie got. Now, on top of all that is the cultural relevance that Mad Max Fury Road has for the 2010s. And our friend, Adam Wendy Fox Weber, she shared this on Facebook when we were talking about best of the decade stuff recently. She said, we watched Fury Road on New Year's Eve because I said it summed up the decade. Global warming, dictatorship, feminism, it had it all. I'm going to add something to Wendy's thoughts, which are dead on. Another hallmark of the 2010s. I'm going to say bad religion. Think back about this movie and how Immortan Joe in particular, yeah. the villain, right? He manipulates religious fervor, yeah. religious language, yep. liturgies, symbols. All of this he uses to maintain his stranglehold on the people below him, particularly the women. It's just diabolical and it would become eerily familiar not long after Fury Road's release in 2015. Charlize Theron's Desert Scream, I hear you, sister. All right. This is your way home. We go back? Hmm. Back? Yeah. I thought you weren't insane anymore. What are they saying? He wants to go back from where they came. Citadel. What's there to find at the Citadel? Green. And water. 
There's a ridiculous amount of clear water. And a lot of crops. It's got everything you need. As long as you're not afraid of heights. Where does the water come from? He pumps it up from deep in the earth. Calls it Aquacola and claims it all for himself. And because he owns it, he owns all of us. I don't like him already. It'll take two weeks to skirt the wall of mountains. No. I suggest we go back the same way we came. Through the canyon. So all that cultural context, plus its formal brilliance, that puts Mad Max Fury Road at the top of my list. To make me feel better, Adam, can, can I say that Fury Road is my movie of the decade, but Tree of Life is maybe my movie of the century? Does that make any sense whatsoever? I mean, that's a nice cop-out, Josh. <laughs> okay. Just say yes. It's a nice cop-out. I'll accept it. Okay, thank you. I will accept it. My number one film of the 2010s comes from 2013. And do you know what it is? No, I'm kind of su- I thought you it would be The Master. Yeah. No, it's it's Inside Lewin Davis. It is Inside yeah, Lewin okay. Davis. That's the other one I was waiting for. So only the Coen brothers, I think, could take the story of a failed folk singer, a man whose timing professionally and personally is always just completely out of sync with the world. You think about the end of the movie, he's probably leaving the trade has been so beaten down that he's ready to get out just as Bob Dylan is performing for the first time in the village and the whole scene is about to explode. And they turn it into a philosophical meditation on the fleetingness of time, on the futility of the battle of art versus commerce, and the roads not chosen. And it's all wrapped in what is essentially another, if you subscribe to the theory that, oh brother, where art thou, is actually rooted in Homer. It's another Homeric Odyssey. That was even clearer to me watching it this time in preparation for this list. There are direct nods to the Odyssey. We come to learn that the cat's name is Ulysses. Mm-hmm. I don't think by accident. That trip he takes to and from Chicago, where he's trying to get to the Gate of Horn, more on that in a second, riding initially with John Goodman in the back. The interstate is rendered like the underworld. It's dark. It's mythic. There's just this humming, recurring sound, I think, of the tires on the interstate that's really eerie. Everything about it is almost supernatural. At any point, something totally absurd and out of the realm of realism could occur. And then when he gets to the club where Albert Grossman, the guy who's the kingmaker of folk singers, and he's ready to perform for him, this is his big shot to really maybe take this somewhere where he can actually live and subsist and not have to just be on people's couches every night he gets to the club and it's called the gate of horn which is a real club that existed in chicago back in the 60s but i was going with this homer theme josh so i was like well why is it called the gate of horn i think that's a real place but i wonder if there's some connection and i guess i didn't pay enough attention back in humanities 101 as a sophomore because i forgot that It's referenced in Greek literature, including in the Odyssey, and the gates of horn and ivory are this image that are basically there to distinguish a dream that is true from a false one. And so if it's the gate of horn, then it's a true one versus ivory, which are false. And I think that there's a suggestion that his dream is true in so much as his talent is perhaps true, and yet that doesn't really seem to matter in this world, in a world where Albert Grossman only cares about whether or not there's going to be a little bit of money in it. It's certainly where his dream is shot and basically goes to die. Coming home on that trip from the Gate of Horn, he sees the sign for Akron, and 
you just see in Oscar Isaac's face that he might be considering actually turning off to go towards Akron because he got a woman pregnant, thought she had an abortion, heard she moved to Akron. Turns out she didn't have that abortion. So he's got a woman who he was in a relationship with, and he has a child. And he could go that route if he wanted to. He could domesticate himself or he could keep on his current path. He could keep chasing that dream, which he does, but the world doesn't care about it. And I think that's the tragedy of Lewin Davis, even as he's an unbelievable bastard. And I loved that so much on Rewatch 2, watching how Oscar Isaac leans into that bastardness. He simply cannot bring himself to please people, whether it's on stage, which would seem to be important for a performer, or it's off. And if I recall our Sacred Cow review of Miller's Crossing a few years ago, I think you brought it up and we spent some time on what the hat stands for, the Gabriel Byrne wears, what that hat really means in the world of Miller's Crossing. I think here, one of the great mysteries of Inside Lewin Davis is what that cat <laughs> really ultimately stands for, right? And it could be some sense of stability and dependency and even responsibility. It's the one thing he takes responsibility for. He He's not good at it, but he actually seems to care about the cat and wants to return it to impulse. the right place. The impulse is there in him. It shows that there's something in his nature to care. And then you also see in the cat the way that cat seems to long to be free, is desperate to get out and get away all the time. It's desperate to be free of other people, just like Lewin Davis is. But just like Lewin, it can't exist without others and without the care of others. And, of course, I just love the music especially Lewin's stuff and Isaac's performances, but even the stuff that Lewin Davis seems to despise, I go for that too. Simply for me, the reason it's number one, it's the movie from the 2010s I most can't live without. There was fiddling and dancing On the day the babe was born But poor Queen Jane Beloved Lay cold As a stone Lay cold As a stone I don't see a lot of money here. So we've got two Coens across our top 20. Right. Two Paul Thomas Andersons. You, two Barry Jenkins. That's right. You couldn't give me one Wes. You couldn't. You couldn't do it. You couldn't put Moonrise on there, so we could have had each had a Wes Anderson. If I had rewatched it, instead <laughs> I had to watch Adam Sandler's murder mystery <laughs> to true. make up for blame a it on spotting madness bet. Blame it all on madness. You're right. I have no one to blame but myself for waiting. That concludes our top twenty films of the 2010s. I suppose our last bit of business is to see if there are any other titles. That you want to honorably mention? Oh, my goodness. Or do you not even want to start? I I will say I did put together on Letterboxd a top 50 films of the 2010s list. It's alphabetically ordered, so it doesn't really give you, you know, a ranked honorable mentions. But you'll see, listeners can see the other titles that were in the running there. Here, I'll throw a few out. I'm looking at it now. Camera Person, the documentary. Um, from Kirsten Johnson, I considered that. Um, looking here, what else? Patterson, Jim Jarmusch film. Um, in the animation category, The Tale of the Princess Kaguya. Kind of an out there pick, but one that uh, has stuck with me. And then I did try to do a little bit of homework to see some of the more acclaimed titles that others had talked about, written about over the years I'd never seen. So something like The Turin Horse, which I know you've seen, the Bela Tarr film, Adam, mm-hmm. maybe not a big fan of. No. I did like it. 
didn't crack the top 50. But but I gave it a shot. The one that did make the top 50, uh, and we recently saw last year, Zsa Zhanka's Ash is Purest White. I did watch A Touch of Sin, thought it was really great, put it on the top 50, but that's about as high as it got. So I have a few titles I'll list, and some of them you've already listed, Josh. I won't get into too many, but I had three kind of categories. These are the titles I most strongly considered for the top 20. I don't know where they would rank. I'm not going to bother with that, but the three categories are obvious picks, maybe a little less obvious, and then my picks, the ones that seem idiosyncratic, a little bit more in line with Never Let Me Go. So the obvious ones, you had Moonlight and Phantom Thread on your list. Definitely thought about those as well as Inherent Vice. I loved Marriage Story, the bound back film from last year, considered it as well as Her from Spike Jones and Richard Linklater's Before Midnight. A little less obvious, perhaps, two movies that made your top 20, Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. I also considered The Writer, The Handmaiden from Park Chanuk. Oh, yeah. And, as I said, Arrival. The film from Denis Villeneuve that seems unstoppable in Film Spotting Madness, a movie that has definitely lingered in my mind and has really only, I suppose, gained esteem over the years. Can't wait to rewatch it. Then my choices, Little Women from Greta Gerwig, The Big Short from Adam McKay, My Beloved Sing Street, John Carney, Columbus, Golden Brick winner a few years ago from Koganada, Sarah Pauly's Stories We Tell. And I did actually consider... That if you wanted to go straight comedy, if you were maybe maneuvering the criteria a little bit and giving less weight to greatest or canon, but trying to make sure that you had some different types of films mm-hmm. represented. For me, the movie that is probably the funniest of the 2010s, The Trip, mm, Steve Coogan, okay. Rob Brydon's The Trip. And I'm a fan of all the films that have followed it as well. I mean, it's no Cedar Rapids, but pretty funny. <sighs> pretty funny. Those are, again, our top 10 and 20 films of the 2010s, plus those honorable mentions. You can see all those picks over at filmspotting.net slash lists. And that is our show. Finally, we can turn the page and look at 2020. It only took us three months to really get into the films of this year. Feels pretty good. All right. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter if you want to let us know what you thought about any of these picks. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at the show archives at filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll, which right now is Film Spotting Madness 2020, the best of the 2010s. We'll be in the midst of our round two matchups. To order Film Spotting t-shirts or other Film Spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, go to filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in wide release, Emma, the latest Jane Austen adaptation, is expanding and onward from Pixar, as well as The Way Back, starring Ben Affleck. In limited release, speaking of my guy Steve Coogan and Michael Winterbottom as director, the movie Greed is out about a billionaire celebrating his 60th birthday. And Wendy, recommended. By Josh. Not beloved, but recommended. Recommended to those who really liked Beasts of the Southern Wild. Very specific. Next week on the show, you're going to hear our interview with Kelly Riker. We're going to talk about her new film, First Cow. I think we're both going to get a chance to see. I know you've seen it, but hopefully I'll catch up with Onward, yep. the latest from Pixar. It's we'll good stuff that. for okay. those who are thinking about it this weekend. A lot weekend, of qualifications yeah. with your, just Good for those stuff. who are desperate to How go to a movie. a qualification? Okay. I thought you were going to say, for those who something. I mean, the, 
I mean, those who are thinking about going to see it this weekend, okay. as it opens this weekend, it's good stuff. If you want to go see a movie this weekend, Onward is a movie you could see. No, that's not what I'm saying. It's better than that. <laughs> and Madness Sweet 16 revealed. That's all next week. <sighs> Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, and special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.